All right. Well, happy Sabbath, everyone. It is a privilege to be here. I was here, wow, it was eight years ago. And there was at least one person that walked in that was here when I was here eight years ago. So, wow, amazing. But they're not a student anymore, so you're not going to be here forever. Those of you, some of you are going to graduate. But it is a privilege to be here with you uh, this evening and this weekend. Uh, the title of our message tonight is Vatican II, Cultural Worship Invades Adventism. So I'm hoping that you're going to find this a very informative and enlightening presentation. Um, when I was in my doctoral studies, I was told that I needed to get some bibliographic material on all the things that we had published as far as doctoral dissertations. And I discovered that the outside world, Catholics and other evangelicals, had done a lot of homework on Vatican II, and I came up with peanuts uh, as far as Adventism was concerned. And so uh, as I began to read their documents, I began to be quite amazed and shocked. Uh, so I hope to really uh, inform and enlighten in this presentation because uh, what the Catholics have done is like absolutely unbelievable, unbelievable. And so if you've ever had the idea that you're kind of dealing with idol-worshiping people and they don't know much, nothing could be further from the truth. And so I would just ask that you bow your heads as I just pray one more time. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we look forward to the day when we can worship you around the throne. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit because we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so tonight I ask for a double portion of your Holy Spirit. May you enlighten our minds. May you convict us. Help us to understand where we are and then where we need to be. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles tonight, uh, the title again is Vatican II, Cultural Worship Invades Adventism. And so in order to get a picture on what I mean by cultural, I'm going to take you to 1 Kings chapter 12. And we're going to begin in verse 25. So that's 1 Kings chapter 12. And then we will be at verse uh, 25. We will begin there. The kingdom is now split, and the ten tribes go to Jeroboam. And the context here is that there was kind of a civil war that was looming in the background. And so we pick it up in verse 25, and it says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem and Mount Ephraim, and dwelt therein, and went out from thence, and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So I'm just going to stop there for a moment. He's kind of sizing up the situation, and he takes advantage of the circumstance that he finds himself to be in, and that is one that's very uncertain. Uh, the, uh, the southern kingdom wanted to take them back by force. And so like any good politician who never lets a crisis go to waste, he used worship in order to advantage himself politically. That's what began to happen. And he realized that three times a year, God's people would go to Jerusalem in order for them to 
become acquainted with the plan of salvation as it was revealed in the sanctuary there. And he knew that if they went there, their loyalties would be not to him, but to Rehoboam. And so he thought, how can I steal the loyalties of these people and get them back to me? Well, since they were a religious people, he would use worship in order to do that. Notice what begins to happen. In verse 28, it says, Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. So it says that the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. That means he didn't get his counsel from the Bible because that's idolatry. So when he took counsel, uh, he got his counsel from human philosophy and culture. That's where he got his counsel from because uh, biblical theology is incompatible with reducing the divine presence to the creation. So he said, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. What's at Jerusalem? Well, the temple is at Jerusalem. And God's people were to assemble there to hear the word of God as the priests would enact that and become more familiar with the plan of salvation and other things that were revealed therein. And so um, he, we, we pick it up then uh, in verse 29. Actually, before I get to verse 29, he says, Behold thy gods of Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Like in Exodus chapter 32 at the golden calf? You know, you know the thing we learn from history sometimes is that we really don't learn a whole lot. And so this had been done before, and now he's going over the same ground again. And unfortunately, it's not going to go well. So in verse 29, it says, He set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And then something else begins to happen. It says, He made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And then he begins to do something else in verse 32. Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the 15th day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. You notice how many times the word he was mentioned there in verses 32 and 33? That's because there's a transference of authority from Scripture to Jeroboam. So Jeroboam, as the conference president here, is the one who is calling the shots and changing the prescribed order of worship. And so the Bible is basically saying he is the one that is the authority. So in this kind of worship, the authority of Scripture has been replaced by the authority of the church at this point. So if you're looking up on, on the screen, when you have philosophy and science and culture as the foundation, but not Scripture, then the sanctuary loses its systematic role. If you'll remember, he, wa he wanted to prevent them from going to Jerusalem, and at Jerusalem was where the sanctuary was, and that's where the plan of salvation would be revealed. That's how you learn how to worship. That's how you formulate your ethics and so forth and so on. And so when philosophy and science and culture are the driving forces in theology, then the sanctuary loses its grounding role. 
Church authority is based on local culture, and God begins to be understood in a pantheistic or panentheistic way. You know, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. So the divine presence is now reduced to the creation. And then when the divine presence is reduced to the creation, it affects how we understand salvation, it affects how we understand ministerial practice, and it affects how we understand worship. So this is like a whole series of dominoes that is beginning to drop. To summarize, Jesus used the analogy of a good tree can only bear good fruit, and a bad tree can only bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit, and a good tree does not bear bad fruit. So he rejected the good tree, scripture and the sanctuary. Then he chose the bad tree of human philosophy and culture. This caused the following interpretations. This is the bad fruit. God is confused with nature and is revealed everywhere. Now, don't get that confused with God is everywhere. Yes, God is everywhere, but he doesn't reveal himself everywhere. He chooses the time and the place in which he reveals himself, okay? But now God is actually revealing himself everywhere. And what is it that makes anything holy? It's the presence of God. So all nature is holy. That's bad fruit number one. Bad fruit number two. Since the divine presence is revealed everywhere and all things are now holy, it means that everyone has the presence of God and thus everyone is holy. If everyone has the divine presence and everyone is holy, then anyone can serve as a priest irrespective of all the genders that exist. There's no need to restrict the priesthood to Aaron and his sons because adherence to biblical principles does not make anyone any more holy or any less. Because you're already intrinsically holy because the divine presence is in you. Now, don't confuse that with the power of God is operating in you. The power of God is not synonymous with the presence of God. Not synonymous. So bad fruit number three. Since the divine presence is revealed everywhere, worship is no longer restricted to the sanctuary in Jerusalem. Now you can go anywhere because he reveals himself everywhere. Since the divine presence is revealed in all places and at all times, the Sabbath becomes irrelevant. Doesn't become a special day anymore because he's constantly revealing himself all the time. But the Bible says on the Sabbath, he reveals himself in an extra special way, unlike what he does on all the other days. Since the divine presence is revealed everywhere, God is automatically revealed in all of the worship practices in all cultures. Are you following? We're not talking about cosmetic changes here. Not at all. We're talking about something incredibly foundational here. So this is what this story is referring to as cultural, okay? So culture is being used, if we look up at the screen here. In the middle, you find all the components of worship. You can't have worship without the divine presence. You can't have worship without worship leaders. You can't have worship without ritual actions like when it takes place. Uh, what kind of building it takes place, what kind of music is offered, what kind of prayers, what kind of, what kind of service, etc., etc. You can't have worship without an encounter between God and the worshipers, and you can't have worship without a response to that encounter. The story of Jeroboam reveals that it is human philosophy and culture that is interpreting all of those things. 
That's what is meant by cultural worship, okay? It's not like just the tie you wear or, you know, I mean, we're all into health, right? So it's not like, okay, you can, okay, if you, as long as you go by Genesis, you know, one and two, well, it might be burritos for me, but lasagna for you, you know? That's, that's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something really, really foundational here. And so this is important because um, Jeroboam was a good Roman Catholic long before Roman Catholicism. And Roman Catholicism accepts philosophy and tradition as the driving force of their theology. And so we're going to map that out at this time. So we're going to go to Vatican II. And as we look at Vatican II, we'll look at the contemporary situation from the 1960s to today. We'll look at the impact of Vatican II, what the components of worship are, how worship is defined by the experts, the impact of Vatican II on Protestantism, and then on Adventism. All right? All in a few moments. So the contemporary situation from the 1960s to today, I'll give you the source here. This was a time of change. The hippies with their guitars were caroling their message of peace and love at the door of the national capital and the local sanctuary. King David's advocacy of stringed instruments, notwithstanding, the church saw the guitars of Peter, Paul, and Mary as swords of change, not plowshares of peace. Have you ever heard that music before, Peter, Paul, and Mary? Doesn't that sound like a lullaby compared to what's, uh, what the kind of music that is possible to be heard today? But they saw it as the swords of change, not the plowshares of peace. That's in the 1960s. The drums and hair of Ringo Starr, uh, the drummer for the Beatles, and all others like him and his group were all heard by the established society as the threatening drums of a war dance. The drums were getting louder, not softer. This comes from America's Worship Wars, page three and four. Now, how did the church react to all this? The society was, was becoming unglued. How did the church react? The church reacted by closing its uh, doors and windows to the outside world but there would be cracks in the defenses. In other words, when the church began to hear this, they said, you know what? There ain't no way that's coming in here. Okay, but why? We don't know, but it's not coming in here. So it was a knee-jerk reaction. Okay, what kind of principles or theology are you coming up with to say that this is not coming in here? Do we need to? Look at it. Now, it says that there would be cracks in the defenses. So this is what the author said. He said, the church had not thought this deeply, had not entertained the prospect of such radical involvement, had not considered such radical change for centuries. The issues were being forced. And as a student of church history, the enemy always gets up one on us before we finally wake up and figure out what's going on. Defensiveness, even if just to buy some time for contemplation, was a common reaction, but there were cracks in the defenses. One of the cracks was the Second Vatican Council. Okay, so you have cultural forms of music going on in the 1960s. Society's getting uh, a little flustered about this. The church is saying, no way. They're building these walls, and what they're communicating by that is, there's no way that's coming in here. That's stopping. But one of the churches is like, now nah, let's put some cracks in the defense and let this thing through. So what this is saying is that the Roman Catholic Church is going to come up with a philosophical, theological justification 
for why this kind of music, the cultural music of, of all cultures, basically, the, the music of all cultures, why that should be allowed. That's what they're going to do. They were thinking about this long before this time. And they were already coming up with the philosophical and theological justifications for why they were going to do this. The importance of Vatican II, it was described, by the way, this took place between 1962 and 1965. It was described as the most important council of the 21st century, of the 20th century on the subject of worship. It has spawned thousands of books, articles, conferences, and doctoral theses. And when I checked, like this was around 2008 or so, 2009, I think there was one book that we had as Adventists on Vatican II, and then... Uh, there was nothing as far as doctoral work. Absolutely. Crickets. Protestants described it as nothing short of revolutionary. A worship earthquake of major seismic proportions whose results were breathtaking and controversial. It set off massive aftershocks among Protestants. In other words, it was kind of like Protestants were boxing, and they got hit with a left hook that came out of nowhere. They were like, why are they doing this? We have no idea. No idea. The cracks in the defenses have led to the makings of a war in the evangelical Protestant free church. All of the worship wars that began in Protestantism began after Vatican II. They began afterwards. Kaufman describes the struggle over worship that has taken place in the churches in North America as the 30 years war. So let me read to you something that comes from one of the 16 documents that was produced at Vatican II. This is the constitution. They refer to it as the constitution on the sacred liturgy. Liturgy is not a word that we're often used to as Adventists. So you can think about it as corporate worship, not something that you do privately, but something that we do corporately. So let's read about what they're going to say. In Articles 37 to 40, the Constitution makes a distinction between the substantial unity of the Roman rite and the revision of liturgical books that allow for legitimate variations and adaptations to different groups, religions, and peoples, especially in mission lands. This will get clearer. These adaptations refer to the administration of the sacraments, the sacramentals, processions, liturgical language, sacred music, and the arts. What they're going to do is they're going to set up a dichotomy between the pinnacle of their worship service, which is the Mass or the Eucharist, and then what you're going to see going on in these statements is all kinds of variation, cultural variation, when it comes to the sacred music and the arts. It states, in certain parts of the world, especially mission lands, there are peoples who have their own musical traditions, and these play a great part in their religious and social life. For this reason, due importance is to be attached to their music, and a suitable place is to be given to it, not only informing their attitude toward religion, but also in adapting worship to their native genius, as indicated in Articles 39 and 40. Therefore, when missionaries are being given training in music, every effort should be made to see that they become competent in promoting the traditional music of these peoples, both in schools and in sacred services, as far as may be practicable. Now, you need to understand that this is absolutely revolutionary. 
because for 400 years, from the Council of Trent all the way to Vatican II, you basically had Gregorian chant as the pinnacle, the apex of the kind of music that was put forth during this time. And then in Western Europe, that was also accompanied by high art Baroque music that was often based on the melodies of the chant. All right? That was it. That was it. Nothing. No other cultural variation whatsoever. And then all of a sudden, 400 years later, bang, they blow the floodgates wide open. And now they say, okay, we are going to make sure that we are training people to perform music according to their native culture, to accompany the Mass and the Eucharist, something that was never, ever done before. So, how can a church which considers itself infallible and which has expressed that infallibility through certain forms of worship now suddenly change its forms of worship without endangering its claim to infallibility? They're going to try really hard. Um, and so here's where we need to talk about the structure of worship. If you want to catch mice, you need a mousetrap. And that mousetrap needs to be made of certain materials. And they all need to be put in the right place. The irreducible complexity argument. In order for you to catch mice, in order for us to have a worship service that's after the principles of God's word, and we want the Holy Spirit to bless it, well, it's got to be, we got to understand what these components are. So these are the components of worship, and we mentioned them before. God, worship leaders, ritual actions, and encounter, and the response to the encounter. Now, what's going to happen is that they're going to exploit their philosophical structure in order to then justify the changes that they're going to make. So, for instance, uh, if you're not aware of the fact, uh, almost all of Roman Catholic theology is based on Greek philosophy. Uh, so, I'm Greek. And so, the Romans were our superiors on the battlefield and in law, and in administration. But when it came to philosophy, uh, they were not. And so uh, we took them over philosophically. And the, the, the Roman Catholic church system would simply implode without the Greek philosophical mind. It would simply implode. If you go to Revelation 13, it's talking about the beast that comes up out of the sea. Do you know what the largest part of that animal is in the book of Revelation? It's compared to a leopard, and the leopard refers to Greece. So, a little, uh, a little philosophical, uh, it's not too late for that, is it? So, Plato theorized that there were two worlds, all right? A world of ultimate reality that was completely incompatible with time-space, no time, no space, no succession or movement from past to present to future, and that was called, like, you know, that's, that, that was heaven for him, all right? Now, the biblical heaven is completely different from that, you know, from one new moon for, to another, from one Sabbath to another. You know, we're doing real things. I didn't grow up as an Adventist, and so I thought heaven was like these guys on puffy clouds playing harps for all the ceaseless ages of eternity. And when I was in my early 20s, full of much more testosterone than I have now, it was not a very attractive picture. Like, well, who wants to do that? No wonder people don't want to go there. I mean, I'm going to play harps for all the ceaseless ages of eternity. Okay, great. But that's the Greek version of heaven. All right. 
So uh, that is eternal, that's perfect, and that's unchangeable according to Greek thinking. And then the world we live in is the world of the shadows, all right? This world is changing, temporal, and evil. Greek thinking introduces dualities where none should exist, all right? For instance, there's a dichotomy between God and the world. God is unchanging, eternal, timeless, good, and perfect, but the world is changing, temporal, and evil. His student Aristotle would come along and say, you know, Plato, there's uh, not two worlds, there's only one. And he would say reality is composed of substances. That's the immaterial part of everything that you can touch, feel, and see. And then he called them accidents. That's just the material aspect. Substances are understood on the basis of Plato's heavenly world and are discerned only by reason. And accidents are uh, derived from sensory perception. This whole philosophy explains um, uh, the Eucharist and what happens during the Mass. The Catholic Church adopted this framework to explain what occurs when the priest consecrates the bread and the wine during the Eucharist. And this change occurs at the level of the substance, and it's called transubstantiation. Let's see if this can explain it perhaps a little better. So you have in that square the bread and the wine. The white circle inside that square represents the immaterial aspect, all right, allegedly. The part that you can't, I mean, you guys dissect stuff here. You can dissect this to infinitum. You're not going to find that in reality. There's no immaterial part of the bread, all right? And so this is a, this is a form of thinking that the Greeks uh, systematized. They didn't come up with it, but they systematized it. So you have the material substance, which is perceived by the senses, and the immaterial Timeless, that means, uh, not, timeless not in the sense of something that can be enjoyed throughout the centuries. Timeless meaning there's no succession of past, present, or future. This is a philosophical term. So immaterial, timeless substance only perceived by reason. How do you know it's there? I just know it is. This is allegedly changed into the substance of the divine human son of God. And if you've heard the word sacrament before, a sacrament is anything material through which the divine presence is manifested. So here you have the bread and the wine. The central aspect of the worship service in Catholicism is when the priest elevates the host and he says, this is my body. That is the central aspect of worship. Transubstantiation is the cause for the celebration of the Eucharist as the central aspect of worship. The real presence here is interpreted by Aristotle and is associated with transubstantiation. Again, the word of God here is not central in this worship service. So these dichotomies are going to explain then how the church justified all kinds of cultural changes when it came to art, music, and architecture. All right? So you have within this structure things that are unchangeable and things that are changeable. When you start looking at this through the, through the framework of Greek philosophy, then the part that doesn't change for the Catholics is the Eucharist, is the Mass, is the bread and wine there. That's understood on the basis of Greek philosophical thinking. And then you have that black horizontal line, which means that there's now a dichotomy between what is eternal and unchangeable and then what is changeable. So for them now, art, music, and architecture does not belong to theology, but to cultural studies. 
These things can be evaluated based on aesthetics and based on culture, but not based on theology because they have nothing to do with theology. All right? This is the framework of thinking. And uh, actually closer to the truth in Vatican II, because Vatican II introduced an evolutionary concept of the divine presence, and Pierre Teilhard de Chardin was instrumental in this, and he theorized that God was coming to an awareness of himself through the process of evolution that would lead to the omega in which now history and materiality and all that stuff would no longer exist. So, so yes, the evolutionary path to the omega. And so again, you, God is split up into a material, uh, the immaterial aspect of God, which is kind of like the soul of the world. Where, where, where he's invisible and unchangeable, which is expressed by the Eucharist. And then you have God's body on the bottom part associated with the world, which is visible and changeable. So all the worship practices of the world are there, and they're changeable. So they have the structure then to say um, that this is the way it works. So here's some examples from them. Enculturation is a fancy word that, in, that, that describes how you can adapt the Eucharist to all the changing cultures in the world when it comes to either architecture or dress or music or you name it, okay? So notice what they're saying here. In 1994, an African synod took place in Rome at St. Peter's Basilica, which used the Zairean rite. It gave powerful witness to the worldwide church of what liturgical enculturation can mean. After all, it's not every day that one sees cardinals dancing in St. Peter's. He goes on, my intervention is a hymn of praise and thanksgiving to God for the great blessings that the church in Africa has enjoyed in the post-Vatican II era through the active, conscious, fruitful, and indeed also joyous participation in the Eucharist celebrated in the richness of our cultural expressions. So the Eucharist is the constant and cultural expressions all vary, okay? All over Africa in the last 40 years, this is after Vatican II, beautiful Eucharistic celebrations have emerged, which have deepened the faith of the people, improved the quality of their participation, increased the love for the priesthood, given joy and hope in the midst of distress and despair, fostered ecumenical rapport, and generally promoted evangelization. The Eucharist deserves and is receiving the best of our, notice, cultures. We may not have much to offer in terms of the glorious architecture of European cathedrals or the fabulous paintings of Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, but what we have, we are happy to give. Our songs, our lyrics, our drumming, and rhythmic body movements, all to the glory of God. We do well to acknowledge and extol the valuable heritage of the Eucharistic traditions of the different ancient rites of both East and West. I believe these are themselves the products of an enculturation that took place many centuries ago under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That same spirit has not gone to sleep. Okay. So I don't want you to lose the big picture. Don't get, don't get stuck in the weeds. I'm not talking about drums and all of this stuff right now, okay? I'm talking about the structure that says any cultural expression is valid. All right? Where does that structure come from? Does it come from the Bible or does it come from human philosophy? It comes from human philosophy. That's where it comes from. So when you have a bunch of parts, you want to know how the parts go together. Are they integrated or are they dichotomized? If you wear the glasses of the Greeks, they're dichotomized. Is that the biblical structure for understanding this? You're going to want to come back tomorrow. So, 
ecumenism. That's a fancy word for unity. And Jesus, of course, talked about unity. And the Catholic Church has done so much work on this. I mean, they are way ahead of us. And unfortunately, we're marching to the beat of their drum rather than exploring the principles of unity from the foundations that we have in the Bible. The liturgical movement has brought out the ecumenical character of worship in the sense that all liturgy should unite us with the church in all times and all places. That does not mean statism or uniformity in the liturgy. The liturgy can and must be adapted to circumstances while remaining true to the basic structures. Well, they define the structures, though. The liturgy may create an ecumenical unity of the churches everywhere in the diversity of rites which manifest the integration of the basic structures of different cultures. So let's see a graph. Let's, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. This is basically what they mean. So the substantial unity, according to the Catholics, would be based on the Greek philosophical structure as it is then exemplified in the Eucharist, which is unchanging. And then you have a diversity of rites. So all of these things, like Sabbath versus Sunday, these are non-theological things. They would say, you guys are arguing about nothing. All this to do about the Sabbath, it has nothing to do with theology. Sabbath versus Sunday, sprinkling versus immersion when it comes to baptism. They've worked all that stuff out too. Um, it, it, it has nothing to do. I mean, as long as you use water, Aquinas said, as long as you use water, it doesn't matter how you use it. Um, and then pipe organs and strings versus drums and guitars. So it's important to analyze the structure again. And so here you have the structure of worship. And these are some questions that we should ask. What's the relationship between God and the world? Or God and culture? Or God and ritual? In the Bible, God does not change. His word does not change. The gospel doesn't change. Yet cultures, customs, practices are different and changeable. That's not so easy to put together. Not so easy to put together. And here I am talking to like, you know, medical students. And this is rather simple. I mean, the stuff you guys study, the stuff is even way more complicated. But um, theology can be a challenge too. When it comes to worship, what is the relationship between God and the world? Are they interrelated in a cause and effect manner, or is there a dichotomy between them? A similar question uh, is, uh, what's the relationship between body and soul? Are they interrelated in a cause and effect manner, or is there a dichotomy? Does what I do to my body affect my soul? Do the rituals that we use in worship affect our understanding about God, or are they totally unrelated? Right, so these are the questions that we're, that we're asking, and there is a structure in order to interpret them. One comes from human philosophy, the other one comes from the Bible. And again, here's some examples. Again, we, we, we already looked at this. Body and soul. So the soul is timeless and material and good, but the body is temporal and evil. Did you know? You probably didn't because you're probably not studying. You got too many, you got too many other things to study, uh, to study early church history like Tertullian. Tertullian said that there's an eternal Sabbath, and he didn't mean the seventh-day Sabbath. And then he said there's a temporal Sabbath. So when you ask Tertullian, did Jesus keep the Sabbath? Yes, but not the way you understand it as an Adventist, okay? He kept the eternal Sabbath, okay, but 
He didn't keep the seventh day Sabbath. That's right. He didn't keep that, but he kept the eternal Sabbath. Well, how did he keep it? Just by doing good. So he dichotomized and differentiated between doing good and then resting on the seventh day. And he, 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 he put this together as the eternal Sabbath and the temporal Sabbath. Now, according to Roman Catholic and evangelical scholars, the sacraments like the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or baptism, these things belong to theology, but social science, humanities, and arts, and music are non-theological fields. That explains all the different cultural expression. Then. That legitimizes it. But that's based on their presuppositions. What has been the impact on Protestantism? Well, even during the time of the Reformation, they fell into this trap of thinking. What's the highlight of a worship service in the Reformation? It is the preaching of the Word. And preaching justification by faith was essential according to Melanchthon. But what Melanchthon also said was that the seven sacraments, baptism, medieval rites, ceremonies, and musical style are all non-essential. So in other words, it doesn't matter. Okay? So even the reformers uh, got stuck into this kind of thinking. What has been the impact on Protestantism, Vatican II? Until this time, until the 1960s, Catholics and Protestants worshipped in isolation. But after Vatican II, the, the differences began to be minimal. The impression was given that Catholicism was changing. There was more of an emphasis on the word. If I was to read to you documents from uh, the Council of Trent, there's all these anathemas and curses. If I was to read to you documents from Vatican II, there's not one curse whatsoever, and it's riddled with Scripture. All right? Big, big, massive difference. But that Scripture is interpreted by their philosophical structure. You're going to read it as an Adventist, and you're going to interpret it through your Adventist brain and say, hey, what's wrong with this? That isn't how they're reading it. It's not how they're putting it together. So they began to have more of an emphasis on the word, and actually what began to take place is that the old dichotomy of the mass versus preaching began to go away, and now it was the word and table that was up front. Protestants and Catholics were now putting aside their differences and seeking to unite through liturgy. The worship wars, again, in Protestantism began after Vatican II because, unfortunately, even Protestants have been doing their theology on the basis of, of human philosophy rather than Scripture alone. During the 1960s, the Catholic Church began to place its approval on the Pentecostal and charismatic movements. You see, in a Catholic worship service, the divine presence is received by the people through the Eucharist. All right? You don't have to taste it. You can actually abstract the divine presence just by looking at it. Okay? And that's how you get the divine presence. Just by looking at what the priest does, you can abstract the divine presence. Uh, and then when the Reformation came, then it was the preaching of the word that was the means of receiving the divine presence. Then when the charismatic movement came along, music, now I'm not talking about the words, the music itself was synonymous with the divine presence. So what changed? The only thing that changed was the mechanism for receiving the divine presence. In Catholicism, it's, 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 it's the bread and the wine. For the charismatic movement, it's the music. 
You just have, you have two different materials that are basically communicating the same divine presence. And the Catholics were smart enough to say, nothing structurally has changed here. So we can put our full imprimatur on it. So music is now the vehicle for receiving the divine presence instead of the bread and the wine. So just by listening to the music, you have the presence of God. That's it. You don't need to read your Bible. You don't need to read it. You already have the divine presence. So this is kind of what this looks like. So just like you had the bread and the wine, now music. Now music is made up of pitch, timbre, loudness, duration, rhythm, melody, and harmony. That's all the stuff that you can, you know, well, touch, so to speak. Okay? But there's an immaterial aspect of music. Um, that's mathematics. Mathematics, okay? Um, and uh, who was that? Augustine did an amazing job in putting this together. Anyone who studies music knows that music is entirely built on math. Entirely. So the math is the constant part, but the rhythm, the melody, and harmony, that's changeable. So this is kind of what Vatican II introduced, and that justifies all kinds of changes there. Now, even charismatics and emergence refer to this as musical transubstantiation. So the purpose of a charismatic worship leader or an emerging church music leader is to make God's presence known to the people, and they refer to this as musical transubstantiation. That means there's no change in the interpretation of the divine presence at all, okay? No change whatsoever, nothing at all. All right. What else do we have here? What's the result? The result, the essence of music is essential and unchangeable. That's the mathematical part. But then the rhythm, the melody, and the harmony are changeable all over cultures throughout the centuries. If, uh, those of you that are musicians, you know, those that are not good at music, they do one, four, five, one. That's it. You know, like C, F, G, C. That's it. But did you... Like the, the number of variations that you can do with that is like unbelievable though, okay? So very simple mathematically, but then when you add rhythm, melody, and harmony to that, you can do a bunch of stuff and variations. So there's the changeable and there's the unchangeable. And uh, yes, this is the manifestation of power when it comes to the charismatic movement, and uh, I think we all know that. Now, the emerging church's mission was to tear down the sacred-secular split that led to the sacramentalization of all reality, and that was actually preceded by the Catholic Church. So when these emergents came along, they said, you know what, the divine presence is in everything. The only sin is in not using something. But this whole idea of the divine presence being involved in everything was preceded by Vatican II. That's the very structure of how the Catholic Church now understands the divine presence. Ronald Wilkins' book, The Emerging Church, The Story of the Roman Catholic Church from Its Beginnings to the Present, originally was published in 1968. They beat them by several decades. So the charismatic movement, the emerging church movement, which, by the way, you don't hear much about. Why? Because they've done their job. Now it's cultural. <laughs> now it's out there. Um, they haven't done anything new that the Catholic Church has not anticipated. Okay. I'm going to skip through some of this because I'm just going to describe some of their, their, their worship. 
They call it alternative worship, rave worship, borrowed directly from the culture of the dance music of the 1980s and 90s. That's combined now with incense, painting, slides, drawings, and candles. So the emergent church combines the stuff from the past with the present. And there's no longer any distinction between holy and unholy, between sacred and secular. Everything is holy and can be used for God, just like in the days of Jeroboam. This is called ancient future worship. And here's an article in, uh, in Christianity Today. It was in 2008. The future lies in the past. So this was what was happening here. Last spring in 2007, something was stirring under the white steeple of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. A motley group of young and clean-cut, goateed and pierced, white-haired and bespectacled filled the center's Barrows Auditorium. They joined their voices to sing of the saints who nobly fought of old and mystic communion with those whose rest is won. One speaker gleefully passed on the news that Liberty University, founded by the late Jerry Falwell, had observed the liturgical season of Lent, a Roman Catholic festival. Just what was going on in this veritable shrine of, to pragmatic evangelistic methods and no-nonsense back to the Bible Protestant conservatism? Had the Catholics taken over? Who would have thought a decade ago that one of the most vibrant and serious fields of Christian study at the beginning of the 21st century would be the ancient church fathers? And so all signs point to the maturing of the ancient future church. So what to do, says the article. Easy, says this young movement. Stop endlessly debating and advertising Christianity and just embody it. Embrace symbols and sacraments, dialogue with the other two historic confessions, Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Recognize that the road to the church's future is through its past and break out the candles and incense. Pray using the Lectio Divina. This is a form of contemplative prayer where you're, where, where you're not really contemplating the meaning of the text. The text is you being used sacramentally. You're not looking at the meaning of the text. The text is just a vehicle for the divine presence, just like the bread is a vehicle for the divine presence. You're not sucking the meaning out of the text, all right? It's just a vehicle. That's all it is. So all no roads are now leading to Rome. Well, how has, how has this shaped Adventism? Well, this has been shaping us for a long time, actually. Uh, emergent speakers shaping Adventist leadership conferences, schools, worship, and missionary efforts has been going on for some time. Um, this is an interesting book here by Doug Padgett called Body Prayer. I don't think I've ever read in the Bible where people pray with their body. You know? But when the divine presence is in you, then movement is a form of communication, and so that's prayer. All right? So I, what, what I'm saying is that these are not just methods. These are methods that are linked with our understanding of the divine presence and how it operates. So the, that, can't be, that, that can't be dichotomized, all right? This is not just a new way to pray. This is really spiritualism. This is a sophisticated form of spiritualism. All right, so all kinds of people into all kinds of stuff invited to our, to, uh, to our uh, leadership conferences and so forth and so on. This is an interesting book, uh, it's really about God, uh, Confessions of a Muslim Atheist Jewish Christian. That makes sense on the basis of a pantheistic and a panentheistic view of the divine presence. Because there's really, I, what makes us anything at all? The divine presence. These things are just superficial. Okay? So I, I'm trying to get you to think really systematically 
If I was to go into medicine, I'd have to be an internist. You know, I can't specialize in something. I, I have to look at like the entire system, you know, and how the thing works together. Uh, Leonard Sweet, he's been invited to previous conferences in some, of our, in some of our institutions, and some of our pastors have trained under him, most notably those that are involved in uh, the One Project. All right? Now, I uh, read a book recently, and this was published by, this is uh, an Adventist author, published by uh, InterVarsity Press called Diverse Worship. Now, I want you to see if there's any, any change in principle from the structure that we've gone over with Jeroboam and with Vatican II. He says, these are the constants of worship. You have to have an assembly of people. You have to have a divine presence. You have to have an encounter. You have to have a celebration of festivals and sacraments. You have to have a presentation of the word and prayer. So those are the constants. Those are the unchangeable aspects. But notice what he says here on page either 43 or 46. Music, arts, dress, language, food, leadership, male, female, all these are cultural artifacts that are not constant. Now, which script are we reading from? What script are we reading from? We are being taken over. We have been taken over intellectually. You don't have to search for the Jesuits anymore. I mean, their ideas are just proliferating all over the place, and we can hardly see them for what they really are. They have taken over. Intellectually, they are pummeling us and dominating us. The basis of ecumenism, again, how different is this from the ecumenical view of how we should understand unity? It reads like right off their script. We are being re-imaged through, through worship. That's what's taking place. Our identity is being changed. That is what is happening among us. And it's happening through worship. In, in our conferences, in our educational centers, in our big, huge churches. This is what's taking place. This is a statement from the North American Division 2018 year-end meeting. Certain influential sectors of Adventism, especially in North America, agree that worship forms should be grounded in the various cultures of the world and that these worship practices are, quote, non-doctrinal, non-biblical issues, unquote. Now again, what script are we reading from? Sounds like we're reading from this one right here, Jeroboam where you have philosophy and science and culture on the bottom. And what role has the sanctuary played in all this? Or has it been utterly eclipsed? Is it just one of the 28 fundamentals? You're going to want to come tomorrow morning, because if you thought, if you thought that the sanctuary was just like one of the 28 fundamental beliefs uh, that is placed alongside all the others, nothing could be further from the truth. It actually exercises an interpretive role over many things. The fruit testifies to the tree. We have seen that a cultural pantheistic view of God with Jeroboam and Vatican II directly produced worship practices that are grounded in culture. 
that particular tree produced that particular fruit. Fruit in Jeroboam's day in Vatican II declare that all the worship practices are grounded in local culture. Now, some Adventists are saying the same thing. If the Jeroboam and Vatican II tree was based on a rejection of the authority of Scripture and of the grounding role of the sanctuary, then the only logical conclusion is that Adventists who ground worship practices in culture have also rejected the authority of Scripture and grounding role of the sanctuary. Now, they're not going to admit that. What I'm saying is you can't get there from here. You know what Jesus said? Either make the tree good and the fruit good, or make the tree bad and the fruit bad. That's the only option here, logically. Because when you look at Jeroboam, when you look at Vatican II, a building is built with the foundation first. And you go, go with the foundation, and, then, and then, that, then you have the walls and the roof connected to it. And when we start having the same walls and roof as those guys do, but then we say, no, our foundation is different, that's not logical at all. Either make the tree good and the fruit good, or make the tree bad and the fruit bad. So one fundamental question tonight. Are worship styles grounded in human culture, personal preference, style, and taste? Or is there a ground in the Bible? The psalmist said in Psalm chapter 11, verse 3, If the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? There's actually an answer to that question in the very next verse. Verse 4. So tomorrow morning, the heavenly sanctuary and the universal characteristics of music and worship. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that you will send your Holy Spirit I pray that you will help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for all that you have done. Lord, you're about to come, and there needs to be an understanding here because your Holy Spirit needs to be poured out. And the worship service is one of the means whereby this takes place, but you're not going to add power to something that you can't support. So help us, Lord. Grant us wisdom. Grant us discernment. Grant us your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.